Hello and welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 106 of the Adventure Games Podcast. I hope everyone is well. Now, this podcast doesn't usually get political for several reasons. But this week, we get nothing but political, and that's because I was joined by Atta from Torpor Studios, and he was the lead developer of the political choose-your-adventure game text game simulation, uh, Suzerain, which was just released at the end of 2020. And I played the demo, and I love that I bought the full game. Uh, it's a fascinating premise, as you are the leader of the fictional country of Sortland. And it's got overwhelmingly positive reviews on Steam. So I was lucky enough to speak to his developer all about the game and all about their inspirations and uh, just everything about the game in general. So without further ado, here is my interview with Atta. Please enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Adventure Games podcast. I am here with Atta from Torpor Games and the developer of Suzerain, a new narrative-driven political simulation. Uh, I don't know if I described that correctly, Atta. First of all, how are you doing? Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a, a an, an okay description. I would say like that's that's kind of what we're advertising as, like a narrative role-playing um, political game. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more to it, as I found out in the demo, at least, <laughs> uh, which we'll get into. But before we get into the game itself, uh, what I ask every developer who joins the podcast um, is, do you have any favorite either adventure slash narrative or even role-playing games that uh, that you really enjoyed playing? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Like, maybe a lot. <laughs> like, yeah, here we go. Um, I would say... Any few in particular that uh, stood out uh, to you? <laughs> I mean, I think Fallout New Vegas was a big favorite of mine when it comes to role-playing. Um, that game hit a tone with me. Um, 80 Days definitely is up on the list. I would say Orwell from uh, Osmotic Studios. Um, also uh, fellow developer colleagues from our publisher. Um, there are definitely a lot more than that. There are also more like focused experiences that I really enjoyed, like Life is Strange, which hit like a good tone with me as well in certain ways. Uh, there are definitely a lot of these awesome games out there. I'm just like naming the few that I can get my head around. <laughs> no, there, are, there are a lot. I, I played Life is Strange last year, which I really enjoyed as well. It got very dark very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> that I wasn't expecting. I was thinking, that's going to be this teenage um, time-traveling uh, game, but then it it got dark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was good. And the turn was, uh, I think, really strong. They could have even gotten further down that line, but they kind of cut cut the cut the road short some at some point. But yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, no, that, that's a you know, well, quite a few games um, there as well. In fact, quite a few good games there. So uh, then you've made uh, Suzerain, which we mentioned at the top of the interview. Uh, is this your first game that you've released, or have you worked on any other games previously? So um, this is the first game our studio released. So this is our first independent game, as um, as, a, as a company of uh, Torpor Games that we founded like last year May. Um, I previously worked on uh, 
couple of games. Um, some of them are more known than others. The whole thing really started when we uh, like kind of gathered with a group of friends and uh, decided that we wanted to make our own thing. For me, the initial inspiration was through modding. Like um, I come from the modding community of Hearthstone Three. Um, I had like a small passion mod there called Black Ice. And um, that mod was like one of the top overhaul mods for that game. And I really found a passion for um, developing like uh, content for the community and developing like cool stuff and kind of releasing it and like seeing the feedback that really like drew me in. I mean, I've been into games like a long part of my life, but um, that experience was something that made like, oh, okay, this actually can be fun work, you know? Um, And then from there, I moved to some freelance game development jobs. Well, I did a bit of stuff at Paradox Interactive. Um, helped out with some testing on a Hearts of Iron 3 um, expansion uh, and then like worked on East versus West, a game that got cancelled um, by Paradox um, and uh, then I worked a bit of on, on Squad as a QA uh, and worked on Terminal Conflict um, as well, a strategy game that came out uh, so I did have experience in like I would say 3-4 solid games um, but after that I decided like I gotta make my own thing, you know, like there's you can do a lot and you can learn a lot from working with other studios. But like, if you have the opportunity to like leave your own mark, do your own thing. I think that when it comes naturally, it's, it's the best. So that's what we kind of did. Sure. I mean, I think you certainly have, uh, uh, left your mark so far with this game. Uh, as we mentioned before the interview, so far it's got overwhelmingly positive reviews, which, uh, which you, you must be chuffed with. You must be very proud of it. <laughs> yeah, when you don't you, expect you it. A game. <laughs> it's, uh, how did it feel, before we get into the game, so how did it feel to kind of release the game? Uh, was it nerve-wracking or were you confident or how did you feel when you released it? Oh, like, I think, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've been pretty open about, like, my journey and like our team's journey and what we've been through like nerve-wracking and mentally drained are are the the correct words here because um like as an indie studio when you found something new first off money is running out so your life depends on it secondly chances of success are like very low like you know this going into it so you're like okay i'm just doing it for doing it you know but at the same time, it's something that can impact your life so much, you know, uh, and there is like that part. And then there's all this effort you're putting into it because there are limited resources. That means that you and your team and everybody has to put 200, 300 percent just to prove to the world that you can do something right. And you can do it on time. And you can also you also need to, you know, amend your mistakes that you make along learning this journey as well, which means a lot more work to be done, you know, to compensate for your mistakes and, and all that stuff. So we really like like worked ourselves to the, to the limit, basically. And uh, when the game launched and we had um, 1,100 concurrent players on launch day, like, and we launched one week before Cyberpunk 2077, which was one of the largest like game releases in years. And we were so close. The media actually didn't even uh, really notice the game because of the Cyberpunk uh, window. Uh, we got very few reviews from like uh, P- like traditional PC games media, but the game was like so popular on Steam thanks to um, the festivals that Steam you know had that increased discoverability, which was you know you also said that you played in one of those, um, mm-hmm. and then we we hit this like high number of players, we hit this like high interest volume. I, okay, I'll be honest, we expected one tenth of 
the attention and the sales we got. Like our entire plan was like, um, like we were expecting revenue to come in at the end of 2021, like, like literally wow. all autumn <laughs> 2021. I'm not joking. That means like the studio had to somehow run an entire year without making money. And because we took investment from our publisher's uh, investment board, which we had to re repay. So you have to recoup costs, costs and indie development. So like there's all these things involved, right? And then you see it succeed and you're like, there goes at least 70% of my worries about life. Like, <laughs> I, like you know, I won't be like uh, struggling as much now. Um, and it, it's, it's a very interesting psychological journey. For sure. We were very happy. Like I cannot, like we were smiling straight for like, I think two weeks. I, I think I like, you know, and, and during COVID, like when everything's locked down and everybody's depressed, I was just like, I was, I had this bright smile. People are like, why are you so happy? <laughs> like, like, oh yeah, the game. Like, yeah, I worked on this four years of my life. Like I spent four, four, about four years of my life. Yes. On this thing. And then it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. Although I guess some people might have been suspicious of you to saw you smiling during probably the worst year of everybody's life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you have a good reason. And it's great to hear that in the midst of this turmoil worldwide that some really good things are still happening. That, you know, when you're releasing this game, it's doing very well and that your hard work is paying off. Um but no, that that is great. As I said, I played the demo. I really loved it, and I just bought the full game because I thought, okay, I want to uh, try the full game now uh, for myself. Uh, I suppose before we get into the mechanics of the game, what what can you tell us of the of the story first of all, just to just to set us up? Um, it's it's very interesting. So Suzerain is set in a fictional nineteen fifties universe um, in a country called Swordland that is a developing nation. This country has seen quite a bit of turmoil. It is a fledgling nation with a uh, pretty new democracy that is uh, just, you know, getting uh, on its feet. Uh, you play as Anton Rain, a character that you can kind of shape the direction of when they become president in 1954. You play about a year and, um, and then you see how much of the country you can change, you can't change and how the story develops. I think like what, one important note about Suzerain is how much uh, we focus on people how much we focus on society. It's an experience that looks inward um, as much as outward. And I, and that's the one key element of this game. Like I think that this universe and this place, it brings you to some place that is different, yet it is also so similar. And it is a perfect like playground to uh, juggle these concepts, not just through entertainment, but also uh, through a philosophical means. Yeah, d definitely. It's, it, you know, because that's what surprised me, first of all, about, well, from the demo. Because when I first saw the game, I initially thought this was another strategy sim where, uh, again, you're a leader of a country, but then you can launch, you know, nuclear bombs or invade other countries. But then when I read it, uh, it says on Steam, a text-based role-playing game that's, uh, you know, narrative-driven, uh, choice-driven. I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting. <laughs> this sounds like it really interests me. Um, why did you decide to to make it like this? Why did you decide to make it uh, a narrative-driven, choice-based role-playing game? Um, it's it's very interesting. So, I mean, I can talk a little bit of where this idea comes from in, in like, the broad yeah, sense. Sure. There are a lot of inspirations behind it. So, we did, um, 
so the, the, first off, there's the there's the thing that the inspiration comes uh, part for the team, part for me, and like obviously everybody who contributes to this project has put some of their inspirations into it for sure. But I think one of the key inspirations was um, definitely developing nations and the struggles they go through and fledgling democracies and societies that are restricted in resources and have so much to make up for and are like going through these um, societal socioeconomic issues and all these issues that, you know, are resulting in these big political things that we're seeing in the world. So it was kind of like, why is there no game um, that is about people in this scenario? Because like the story is about people. It's about what people Mm -hmm. do to other people, right? But like we always see sliders. We always see values. We always see mechanics. Like we rarely feel and talk to the people that think these things. And our actual lives also don't offer much opportunity to talk to people of opposing ideologies and thoughts as well. Because, you know, as you're seeing in the last like five, six years, I would argue that the internet is becoming uh, smaller bubbles of people instead of an area where a lot of ideas clash and like communicate and learn from each other. So I think we as a society are lacking empathy. And in a way, Suzerain puts you in a position where you hear what these characters around you, the cabinet, the people that you meet throughout the story, other leaders, their opinions, their thoughts, their ideologies, what they mean, and you take it in and then you think about them. And I think that way it provides real value and you can only achieve that through a dialogue, through an RPG style system, through a narrative experience, because these are real stories, right? Like these concepts are out there, like they're there in the world. Um, Why can't we have them in games? Like Mm. we do, we can do so much with games. Like there's so much we can do, so much we can talk about. And games do it, by the way, like a lot of games do. But a lot of games don't. And there is a different you know, market for and different games for everybody. So that's fine. We just said we see this lacking. We see the human element lacking about politics. Um, and we just wanted to focus on that. And that's how we did this system. Yeah, it, it, it seems like a lot of games also seem to uh, try and avoid politics for, you know, for risk of offending um, people. But this, this game is... Uh, is a political sim, so you're right there in politics, and I, I like how also at least from the demo and from the Steam page that you get to decide uh, what kind of leader you will be or what kind of person uh, you will be, and you have to make these you know choices uh, when you mentioned speaking with people. Uh, can you give any uh, examples uh, without spoiling anything of what kind of choices you will have to make in the game? Yeah, sure. Um... It's definitely um, there are a lot. I mean, we have a. I think I would, we have about four hundred <laughs> sure. something choices. Wow! Uh, I remember that that there was a few in uh, in the demo as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like uh, one of the big ones that happens early the game is, um, what are you going to do with the constitution, right? So, are you going to reform the constitution and increase representation of the assembly and reduce your powers, or are you going to try to increase your powers with some like small concessions here and there, or are you just going to like declare an emergency and just like you know use your powers to control the country i think even this simple concept this is one of the bigger choices of the game displays some of your uh, intentions and your your style of play um and and that's the thing about um 
uh, a lot of these concepts like will you control the media or not and um, what does controlling the media do like it covers all your scandals it reduces the public opinion damages that you would get if you were to make mistakes it helps you pass certain things easier like but it is in essence a very corrupt thing and it sets a precedent for society right like it sets that yes you might be here using bad things to do good things but who determines what's good what's bad that's just you right there's a lot of part of society that would not agree like oh, what you're doing is good and all these questions come to play and i know for a lot of people these might not be instant questions and in the game we don't want to make it feel like instant questions we just simulate the experience and we want you to subconsciously either trigger these like decisions or after the game finishes think about them um that's kind of like what we're trying to issue so we're entertainment first like kind of like education and thought a bit later and that's why we have mm -hmm. a fictional universe that's why we have these concepts that are different is to get that, ex get that thing across. And the other point I want to make about like games are shying away from being political. Uh, there's a big reason for that. So we're a smaller studio, we're new, and I think our heart is at the right place. So like basically we have this vision with this game that you can play in very different styles. You can play in very different political visions and ideologies or a mix of them. And you can still do so many things in the game and you can experience what happens in your storyline. Um, we as developers, we already between among us have different opinions, right? And mm. there are a lot of things in the game that we've written that we fundamentally disagree on politically. Like, I would never allow this or I would never do this. But this game is a conceptual game. So when you try to dive into like games as an art piece, then you're trying to dive into the theorizing of it. Why does this happen? And Suzerain explains very well why corruption happens or why people um, like give concessions or why people get revenge or anger or like, you know, all these feelings, these political leaders, like what happened to them, you know, that they got to that point or how do they think? And it puts you in those shoes and it simulates that experience for you. And it's very interesting for us, too, because we see these reviews, we see these people come to us and kind of give these reactions that would actually equal to some political leaders in our world being like, for example, angry or frustrated <laughs> or like, you know, wrathful or stuff like that even. And we're like, oh my God, the concept is too real. It's like working on people. And in one ways, we're very happy because we're challenging everyone. So we're also challenging the idealist, right? That's how we designed the game. We're like, okay, I, there's going to be a lot of idealists and Swordland is a developing nation. That means these, these, these things are like harder to do. And we set up all this world and lore to obviously make it immersive and realistic and plausible. So we're like, how can we challenge the idealist? And then how can we challenge the, the ruthless dictator, you know, and how can we challenge, like, we just challenge everyone, basically challenge everything. <laughs> and, um, and it worked well. And I'm, I'm, that's, that's one of the successes of the product. That's why we had um, uh, only very few people, uh, blame that we had a political bias because uh, we had different viewpoints blame us like basically we had um, left-wing people blame us that we're nationalist and anti-left and we also had right-wing people blame us because, saying that we're that we're left-wing and anti-right and uh, stuff like that so that shows that the concept works against everyone <laughs> yeah I, th I think if both sides or if different sides uh you know, criticize you, then you're doing something right. Yeah, and the, criti I mean, the criticism <laughs> is minimal, by the way. The, the things I'm mentioning is like of maybe course, yes. two people out of like uh, <laughs> 5,000. Um, 
but it's still good to see that you know conflicting uh, <laughs> criticism and of, of that and yeah it shows that the concept succeeded and it shows that our hearts are at the right place right we're not here to promote a or b or c we're here to question the world and we're here to question what we see in society and the game is just like a very interesting way of doing so a very you know unique way of doing so and i think game studios should be more brave behind their messages and more true to their intentions and this is one of the problems of the bigger studios that have a lot more investors that have a lot more pr worries that have um, more people hanging out down you know the, the paycheck line um, who are worried to say the wrong thing to scare off the wrong people but this is my opinion if you are if you believe in what you're doing and if your heart is at the right place you should be open about it and you should embrace your concepts and i think people will embrace you for it because that's what happened with us and people are very happy yeah it's uh, i mean i'm uh, it's funny how uh, you mentioned that people you know were criticizing the game it's only one or two people because it's been overwhelmingly positive which <laughs> need to keep saying because when i played the game you know there's a, a lot of choice you could be you know who you want to whether it's right wing left wing dictator more diplomatic or any number of options um but it's uh, it's uh t- t- and I wanted to to ask as well, um, did, what sort of research did you do? To, because again, it's like there's this is, game is so vast that it feels very real. Uh, so, do, does anybody in the team know anybody who has experience in politics, or did you do any? Did you speak to anybody in politics around the world, or what kind of research did your team do? to get the details right because as I said I know it's entertainment but to me who's never been a politician it feels very real as well <laughs> yeah there's there's a couple of things that happened so I, I lived a significant chunk of my life in Turkey and Turkey went through a quite a strong transformation in society in the last 10 years um, there were big constitutional changes there were a lot of political back and forth and there's there's a lot of um, discourse in society about you know what's happening and that did influence me to a degree for sure. And that triggered me to do more research into these subjects, right? Like, uh, I mean, I've, I'm in Berlin, I live in Germany. Um, and in Germany has its own set of issues. Uh, and every place has its issues, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, I think we lack a bit of perspective. And, um, and, and that's the, the main problem is that we look at society from such a like a closed loop, we're like, okay, we, we have the like, we have the memory of like 50 years, right? But actually, societal development is like thousands of years. Every region had its own issues. Every region goes through things, right? Like, it's it's like just, you know, uh, 80 years ago, Berlin, right? Going through something else, right? And then maybe in 200 years, it will be different. So, like, that concept really interested me. But that's what, uh, what also triggered me to think about politics. So, I did a lot of research about politics. I read political um, resources probably every day for about five four years intensely and that really helped me like ground but we also had somebody in the team um who had um, an mp as a uh, as a relative and they did offer like at least to some degree an insight um we did a lot of research on our own uh and we kind of like delved through these concepts i read a, a couple political science books um that helped um, so like a lot of self-research, a lot of like making sure c- comparing what you know to others, um, both around you who are kind of related in this field and also online, obviously. Um, but we, we seem to have succeeded for a team that has not studied political sciences because 
we, uh, we were approached by PhDs in political sciences and teachers and actual politicians who said that this is one of the best and most accurate political simulations out there. Um, yeah, so not just me then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So <laughs> <Who> thought that <laughs> it seems to have worked, and and it's a lot of research, and it's a lot of back and forth. It's a lot of grounding your opinion and comparing with others, and that's the thing. Political sciences is a is a theory based concept, and it's all about. So it's not like you know, it's not like physics. <laughs> so that's another <laughs> thing about it. Um, it's it's definitely like not like physics. So there's a different thing going on there for sure. Um, yeah, but. A lot of research, I would say, a lot of inspirations in our lives and um, obviously talking to people in the field or referencing people in the field uh, and consuming that. And then uh, taking these concepts uh, and then obviously creating a fictional world with it, because in our game, a lot of these concepts also are slightly variant to the real concepts. Like our uh, mm. in our world, millennialism is different than the actual communism. It has certain elements that are close, but it's not the same. Uh, and that's that's where the creative part comes in. Like, this is my, this is the ideology I want to have here, you know, and I want to talk about that concept. And the same thing with like other um, ideologies in the game, like Solism, which is uh, uh, Tarkin Sol, the founder of the Swordish Republics in the game. Uh, his ideology of what he created as another type of way of thinking. Um, and these are all like obviously creative uh, ideologies that you can only actually really create if you're into political sciences, because how would you create an ideology otherwise? <laughs> Yeah, sure. <laughs> and did the fact that this game is set in, um, you know, in a fictional country, th did that give you more freedom? Do you think rather than setting it in the real world? Uh, would you say? Yes, definitely. So this this is one of the key <laughs> key reasons why we wanted to have in a fictional world because the thing is, if you make something actual real world, first off, there are a lot of legal and political issues you mm. go into with <laughs> with the crowd. Um, and again, our concept is uh, challenge everyone and challenge everything so um if we couldn't have done that people wouldn't understand us and i think it would have caused like a lot of animosity out of nowhere and it's i don't think it's creative too like just taking a real world is not a creative work um and that's why the theory always was let's bring people to another universe um let's immerse them there let's make them forget about ours because ours has its own million issues because we're being bombarded <laughs> by you know information of the internet and media like for the past 10 years of our lives now intensely so people just thought maybe some people don't want to think about the world and they're like okay i'm just gonna play this game that's about politics it's serious but like oh it's a different place you know let me see how this is and then and they go in and they they get immersed they get sucked in and then you know they see that there's so many things that are relevant to our world so they get to think about those concepts in another place so it's actually a softer introduction to reality <laughs> of course and was there Without maybe giving any specific examples, but were there things that happened in the real world, in our world, that maybe you put into this game or maybe that you added later on? Because, I mean, the the last five, six years in particular, seems the real world has just gone crazy. Yeah. Uh, maybe it always was crazy. Again, without giving any specific examples, was there anything or was this all entirely fictional that you said, no, this is so, what we're going to do? There, there, there are a couple of things for sure. Like, I, I would say, so there's also one reverse situation. So the pandemic situation we have in the game um oh it was actually before the real pandemic so oh, really <laughs> yeah and people think we added there, there were some negative comments about this they're like oh you just copied just because there's a pandemic like i on the project files the pandemic was added in 2018 uh so 
it, so you guys predicted the yeah, future. So you maybe we did we have cause a pa- it. Pandemic. <laughs> I'm really sorry if it was us who started. <laughs> I didn't want to do anything with this. <laughs> nah, um, but there are a couple of inspirations, obviously. Um, for example, one that comes to my mind would be uh, some of the trade wars that have happened uh, have like obviously caused us to like rethink some of the how, how diplomacy works in our game. Um, I would say what else? Um, some foreign leaders gave us some inspirations in their in the foreign visits, uh, and those who are into the game will know which scenes and what moments. I'm not gonna go deeper there. Um, and uh, yeah, there are a lot of inspirations. So it, it, it's there. There's a lot, but the thing is, you know, it's kind of like we see the world. And then we create our own thing, right? So it's not like, mm. it's not always a direct um, take. Actually, it's mostly never a direct implementation. Uh, sometimes we do have these Easter eggs where like, if you know, if, if you're into politics, so for example, just one of them, for example, there's a scene where um, uh, at the Alliance of Nations, which is like our uh, like world government uh, type of thing. And uh, it's kind of like a weaker version. Of, it's kind of like the League of Nations. Um, and... Uh, there, uh, one of the leaders of the the, uh, the socialist country called Wagsland uh, bangs his shoe at the table, uh, which is obviously a, a reference to Khrushchev and and what happened, you know, in history, and uh, like stuff like that is like you know here you know here's a reference, this is a jab, and he's like you know an Easter egg kind of. We also even have like a vineyard that you can buy um uh from from uh, Geralt, uh, like which is a reference obviously to the Witcher. Um, (laughs) and like we have our little things there but overwhelmingly it is our creative work here like uh, you cannot point your finger at this character and be like this character is this because if you read slightly deeper into their codex if you talk to that character you'll notice that a lot of concepts that you thought are being challenged Um, and um, some are more less creative obviously we can't be 100% unique everywhere because then people don't have any reference points but I think overwhelmingly we have uh, the creative side going instead of taking stuff. Sure. And what what tool, what um, uh, te- te- well technology or engine did you use? Because it, this game looks very distinctive. Um, it and it and I, and I can't recognize. I mean, I'm not a programmer by any means, but I can't recognize what uh, engine was used just by looking at the game. Uh, so did you use a, a tool that's already available? Did you create your own engine or which one? How did you go about making the game this way? Uh, it, it's very interesting. So we basically use Unity because it kind of delivers what we need. Our game is a very simple game, technically speaking. Um, okay. And, uh, <laughs> Doesn't look it. <laughs> yeah, especially on the visual and asset side. Uh, but it's not mm. It's not simple on the narrative. <laughs> on the narrative, it, it's insanely no, complex. Right. <laughs> uh, and this is the balancing act that you have to do as a developer, is that play to your strength uh, and try to uh, minimize your weaknesses, um, which is a very important concept. It's actually a concept that like uh, I always like read from Sun Tzu and like his uh, Art of War book, which I, which I really love. Um, and and it, it is very important for us to kind of like notice very, it was very early on where we noticed like, okay, what can we do good? Like we have to determine what best, like what product can we create with the skills we have that is like uh, good to very good and even great if possible. And uh, it was noticing our technical limitations and trying to like, okay, this is a good first step here. 
Uh, so we used Unity and we created the map. The map drawing was by Ilke, Ilke who's um, our uh, designer, and he created some of the visuals of the game as well. Um, the character artist is different, but but Ilke created the map, which was hand drawn, um, and that was like a lot of work on its own. But that's like you know more art production, not as technical. Um, but so we focused on stuff like that. So the scene is pretty simple, but then we used uh, uh, Artisy as a uh, dialogue uh, conversation system tool at the back end to um, simulate all these dialogues and all these entities and all these variables and all these conditions and these choices that the player makes and to keep track of them and to pull them whenever we need. Um, so that's kind of our database that we use. Um, and RDC Draft was the old name of the program. They just switched to RDC as a full name. Um, yeah, and that helped significantly with our development. It took some time getting used to it, but uh, it works well with Unity. And we have our database there, but we have our scenes in Unity and they both interact. Uh, so technically speaking, on a, out of a out of a ten point scale, our game's technical uh, uh, technical complexity would land anywhere between two or three from ten, <laughs> um, <laughs> especially on the visual and the Unity side. On the back end, though, I would rate us up up to eight or nine <laughs> on the on the narrative, on the design, and on the on the choices and everything. That's like very complex on that side. Right, no, it, it looks it, and it, as I said before, it looks like there is a, a a lot of you know text, a lot of detail went into this game. How, how you said it worked, you know, four years, but did it take all these four years to just write all the text in this game? <laughs> I can't imagine how long was it taking you to write it all. Oh, it's it's um... you know, and all the different choices and all the different. Event that could happen. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. So um, the four years is interesting. So this is the part of the indie game story, you know, like indie dev studio stories, but which is like you need to create a prototype. You need to start with something. You need to create a pre-alpha or a concept, and then you need to see if something can be achieved with it. So the initial first, I would say, two years was two and a half years even was focused on that. I was the only one in the team that was like 100% from the from the earliest onset um, because everybody else was going through um, different things in the team. Um, and it definitely helped to have somebody there always and the expertise and skills of each team member kind of contributed to the development of the prototype. Um, we had, uh, for example, just to give you a breakdown of our team, we we're, were in total seven people who worked on Suzerain. Um, uh, I worked. I generally work in production uh, management. I did a lot of design and uh, also a lot of writing. Um, and uh, Ipek, she did the uh, character art. So she did all the 50 character arts. Um, and Ilke designed, uh, did a lot of game design. Where me and him, we were like sitting down and like just, you know, discussing all these concepts, but this concept means that, but if you do that, but the player does this, but the four turns down the line, they do that, and like if they do that, what happens here? You know, all that stuff. And we, like, he did mostly design, though, and also a lot of writing um, to kind of, like, get the production pushing as well. Özgün did the programming. He's more of our technical person, but he also had to chip in writing uh, because we have a lot of content in the game. Um, James did the, the music, uh, composing, and, and also the sound effects and the sound design. And um, Rachel, uh, we got her as a freelance writer. Uh, she helped us with uh, more writing production, increasing the writing quality. And uh, Tung joined us as an intern uh, towards the late stage of the game development and helped us with design tasks, with a bit of writing and a bit of uh, QA. So um, a lot of people put energy into this project, but at different parts throughout its uh, development cycle. 
um, at the early onset, it was um, the three core members, and we took and then we added the artist, then we added the composer. So we focused on creating something playable, something that is true to the concept of a narrative role-playing game, and trying to focus on what can make it fun and attention uh, driving and like attention pushing and like interesting. It took two and a half years to, until we got to it. It's like okay, this is this is good. We got it. You know, like this is at least presentable. And then we sought out uh, investment. So the thing was, um, it's quite a die roll that you make, by the way. Like this is an experience where like, you know, all my life like is, is dependent on this moment. This one person says yes on the investment deal, right? <laughs> like it's like all these, three, like all these, for me especially, it's like, because like everything hangs on that thread. You're like, okay, it's either I need to find a job next month or this person says yes. Uh, it's it's that intense and and that's that's the that's the experience so that's really good it's good when it works out obviously <laughs> but yeah if you're gonna get into game dev listen here take uh, go into it knowing it's insanely difficult and knowing that you're bound to fail and then if it works out that's okay but just know what you're getting into I'm not gonna be one of those people who says everybody can do it it's gonna work out for you <laughs> just do it you know. I don't, that's, that's bad advice. Uh, just research yeah. a lot. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, research a lot. If you can, mm. if you can like handle this, go for it, but do, do your research. Um, but anyway, so we got the investment from uh, Treasure Hunters Fan Club in 2019. And that kind of like set us on, okay, now we're producing properly. Like we have the money. Now we're going to the finish line. And obviously that wasn't easy either. Like you have to kind of like plan everything out. The game's concept needs to like stick and you have a certain amount of money. You cannot spend too much. Like there's all these things that came in, but um, we developed a product that was much better with the investment we received. Like compared, like if I had published, if, if we had released the prototype we had before the investment, it would have not succeeded. I can guarantee you. Um, and we really raised the quality bar like tenfold from that point on. Um, we reworked a lot of things uh, saying they were not good enough, which is very hard, by the way, once you've worked on them for so long to just like cut them out. Mm. But it, these are the sacrifices that you make when creating a product. If something's not good and if you can make it better, if you have at least slight movement in your financials, in your time, in your windows, you take that risk and you make it better and it actually pays off but you have to be calculated about the risks you take because um, we delayed once, for example, without announcing a clear date. Um, we were going to actually release summer last year, but we released in December and we spent all that time into finishing and improving and polishing the game uh, the way we wanted it to be. And even then there were a couple of things that we wanted to have on launch that we couldn't. And that's the reality of game dev. But that's kind of the story of how it came from a small prototype developed into something bigger and the sacrifices on the way. Right. I've, I've, I've heard from game developers that a game is never really finished or from artists generally that you, you just put it out there, but you could always keep working on it. That's true. Um, That's hundred percent true. Like we could have, could have worked another year on that. Like, um, mm. and in, in, like you can go to any direction with these products. The thing is like, it's like you draw a conceptual circle and you put all this content in that circle, right? And you're trying to make sure there is a certain rhythm to your content. There's a certain purpose. There's a certain correlation. And it still sticks around that concept. That It's still inside that circle of the overall concept, right? 
So if you develop something too much, like if it's really not set up for that kind of growth, like you just you're just getting outside of your game concept, like right, and which is fine. Like certain games are more ex expandable, like grand strategy games. Like you can expand so many elements of grand strategy because it's replayable. There are so many mechanics and all this stuff. With our game, whichever way we expand outside of this core experience is actually making it another type of game. So that's why we had to kind of draw the line somewhere. Obviously, there's mm. also money, right? Like we were. We were basically running out of money by the time we launched. Like I had to raise private investment like two months before launch because we were actually going bankrupt um, and we didn't. But you know, these are the kind of real things that happened behind. And all this, by the way, while I was writing, like I was writing content and all, like I was developing and I was working, I was pulling like 10 hours a day in the last couple of weeks and stuff like that. It was, it was intense, but, but it worked out. <laughs> so yeah, it 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 seems to have been. Yeah. It uh it you know people seem to you know really really like it, um and uh, and and yeah now you you know you mentioned as well that this game was released uh one week before Cyberpunk which also had a few delays uh, I think it worked out for them didn't it that there was no issues. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and, and that's the thing, right? Um, our, studios like ours, indie devs, mm. first product little money for us delaying a game can be like death right it's over mm -hmm. there like it can be the end and we were I, we were like lucky because I mean, certain things worked out in other ways and i i obviously foresaw some things that would that could happen so i avoided them like that's my job right i i i'm also kind of like as the managing director of the company this is my job is to avoid these bigger structural mistakes to make sure the company is running all this stuff um, but these bigger companies, they have an incredible vast chest of money and resources. Mm -hmm. They have an incredible talent pool and they know what they're developing. And that's the one thing that really struck me because I was like, why wasn't this game pushed further forward? And I do understand people are ang can get angry on delays. I do understand the gamer's perspective. I was a, I'm a gamer too, right? You know, I've been playing games most of my life. I've been playing games since 1999. I love games. I know how it feels to be passionate about something and waiting and all that stuff. And I know it hurts when it's delayed. But the thing is, mm. what happened there is the loss of trust and reputation that you, it's so hard to build that reputation. You spend eight to 10 years building up a rep as a studio and then you make this one core mistake and you're not open and honest about it. And then now you have to spend so many years repairing that same very reputation. Um, Witcher 3 was right. one of my most like favorite games. I whenever with The Witcher 3 ended, it felt like somebody I knew had passed away. I'm not kidding you. That was the emotional gap that game left. Like that was how impacted I was by that creation. And um and it raises the bar so high. We're like, "Oh my god, this is going to be amazing." And then like it that happened, you know. Um but you know, it happens. Everybody makes mistakes. It's fine. It's just that larger studios have much more wiggle room. Small and studios like us make don't. Mistakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everybody makes mistakes. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, but it, uh, and and then before we finish, then uh, I wanted to ask about the the marketing of it because this was released one week before Cyberpunk, when it, you know, well, the biggest game probably of the year, and um, and then also to how to go about marketing a a game like like this, a political 
simulation then as well because again politics is around our lives now we can't escape it um and how how did you go about did you leave to the publishers then or did you guys do it did you have like a specific plan of what you wanted to do did did that change maybe over time or how did the go about marketing then is i guess is the question it's an interesting question so first off like who is this game really like for and what what is this game like that th- th- those are like the big questions you answer whenever you're marketing something like because you want to find the identity of something and then make sure that you present it that it like you've presented in a way that is related to that identity that is like connected to the product so for us was it was always about this is a story this is anton's story this is a universe this is a fictional place like that's why everywhere we really focused on the we just say text based role playing narrative swordland issued country country mm-hmm. with issues like we're not saying you know get the economy bar to 10 or we're not saying you know um like this is like you know like how do you say like save this person or like kill that person like no it is about this more more of a story marketing like we're marketing a story basically a, a conceptual story with choices and we really focus on getting that across. Uh, and the good thing with about a fictional world is you can actually market it very well because like you're not going to piss people off because nobody exists there. Um, if it was a real world, obviously it would have been crazy difficult. Um, and that helped. And marketing in this game was very difficult because um, text-based games are not that uh, fancy. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions and obviously it's a tasting as well. Everybody likes different types of games. I myself, I'm not the largest text-based gamer. I uh, I really love the couple of titles that were mainly text-focused, which is like 80 Days and um, Choice of Robots. Those were my favorite text-based games. But out of that, 90%, 95% of the games I play are not text-based. Um, so it's it's def- definitely something that you... Um, it's an acquired taste, and uh, everybody has their different wants and, and genre likes that they have. That's fine. Uh, for us, it was just hard to... Um, kind of explain the concept because it's a map it's uh, there are cities on it there's a dialogue panel there's a country panel but like people don't really understand it from that because the concept is so slow it's such an immersive slow and like additive and accumulative game that you really only understand it after you're a couple of hours in Um, and that was a big challenge in marketing it and we did um, try we we did we did try our best we really embraced in-lore newspapers and uh, in-lore stories uh, before our launch, which helped a lot. Uh, we kind of created this yes. marketing campaign. Uh, and a fellow traveler, our publisher, has done a good job on that. They've uh, worked very well with us and they understood what the game does and the concepts and all that stuff. And they said, okay, like we can make it like an election. And, and then we kind of both yes. discussed and like, we're like, yeah, that, that's like, we, that's a good idea. Like we should make an election, but then we should focus on these factions. We should like use this to explain what these characters are. So once the game launches, people are already somewhat ready, you know, like, well, it, it got really exciting. I, I, I was very happy throughout that process. And I think people really received it well. Yeah. Yes, I was, I was going to mention that what worked really well, at least for me, the marketing for this game in particular, is as you mentioned that this was like an election, that it wasn't uh, just you know, a simple game being released, that the way you dif- the differentiated yourselves is that you made it about Anton and uh, that he was going to be elected 
on December 4, 2020. Yeah, while the real think, US elections were going on and the whole media yes, was speaking about that. that. Do you think that that kind of maybe helped, like speaking of the real world as well, do you think that because there was a, people were so focused on the US election and politics in general, do you think that, and you guys were saying, yeah, there's another election going on here. <laughs> uh, did that help or did it have any effect or impact on the game itself? I think that there must have been some effect, both negative and mm. positive. I think the election drew a lot of attention away from games as well, but also drew a lot mm. to it. I think it was an ebb and flow um, dynamics wise. If you'd released earlier, if you'd released like right before the election or like right after, uh, I think it would have been... Uh, uh, even more different um, because we really mm. like we the game release was uh, December fourth, which is a while. It was it was after like a couple of weeks after the U.S. election. Yeah, about a month or so, I think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but but our whole like marketing campaign was focused on the um, on the uh, the internal USB uh, stuff, and then like the upcoming election. So we hyped everyone up, and then then what we did was like we synced the election to the to the, the U.S. thing, but. The inauguration we said is going to be on December fourth, which was interesting yes, because yes, yes, that was before <laughs> the real U.S. inauguration. So, like, yeah, and, and America plays a big part in um, games marketing and game sales and all this stuff, um, which is very interesting because um, you have to kind of like understand the the the, the machinations of the market, um, and America represents a lot of the sales of our game too, mm. uh, and Steam obviously. Um, so like you do have to tailor some stuff, but what we try to do with the game though, is actually tell the story of developing nations and maybe also create an empathy between developed nations and developing nations, right? Because there are a lot of problems of developing nations that people in developed countries don't really understand unless they, they're really interested, Mm -hmm. right? In politics and all that stuff. But there are also a lot of things like, you know, that developing nations like, um, face that nobody really like gets into right because um this there's there's an interesting um lack of balance in the world in my opinion and we're trying to like kind of show uh like what goes through you know a country like that i i I, there's an impact aspect to it is what i'm trying to say um and i hope you kind of achieve that well yeah i mean from the demo at least that i've played i believe you uh you did um and mm. then you know this game i believe is uh, about anton's uh first four-year term and now of course i'm not going to ask for how it ends or any spoilers because i still have to play it myself but are there any plans to uh either for a sequel or a continuation of this story or maybe somebody else's story or do you have any future plans at all uh, that you can mention, <laughs> I just want to stress that, uh, set in this kind of universe, now that you spent so long creating these this world and these countries and this, you know, universe, uh, do you have any future plans to make, you know, continuation of the story or more games set in this in this world um, that you can talk about? Or what, what can you say? It's interesting. <laughs> Leave it up to you. <laughs> it's very interesting, yeah. I, I think... We, if you can't answer it, no problem at all. <laughs> no, 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 no worries, no worries. Our universe is like one of the most liked things about our game. I think that's one of our strengths. And I think we spent a lot of effort expanding on this universe and building this universe. Overall, the studio's idea is that it would be a shame to kind of like throw this whole thing away, right? And mm. um, that's all I can say on that part. On the other part, um, 
we, we do communicate often what's next with our community, with our monthly broadcasts. We just say like, here, we're working on this. This is the next thing and all that stuff. Um, I do want to mention that like um, Suzerain 2 is a very difficult concept. Um, and there, there are a couple of reasons for it. So um, the problem with a game with this much choices is make giving feedback on the choices and connecting the choices to be in a meaningful way whenever you look at the thing holistically, right? Um, and with a game that has nine main endings and 25 sub-endings, and even within those wow. sub-endings, <laughs> there are variations, um, you have about, I would say, hundreds of parallel realities, right? A lot of people want the story to continue, but it is technically and production-wise near to impossible to continue the story from all the endings. Um, and even if it was one ending, that means that all the other players that got other endings are going to be completely disconnected and we choose a canon ending. And, and there, there are these like, you know, there are all these like questions that come up and there are all these things. It costs us a massive amount of resources, a massive amount of time and effort to create this product. Um, and it's very unlikely that we're going to make a second one right now. So it's because of these challenges that I mentioned. I, I want people to understand this because it is quite complicated. It's not as easy as making a DLC or a second game. Um, this is automatically, it would cost uh, several times more than Suzerain. And even then it might not be achievable. Um, so there are all these problems. Um, for now, our like near-term focus is about spreading Suzerain. Like, like right now it's on PC and Mac. We're looking at other places to have the game on, um, and we're going to focus on that stuff, I think, uh, because the uh, the overall situation with having an indie studio is you need to have uh, stable resources of income, and games, sadly, are not like <laughs> like a big, big like source of income from one platform, and unless you're very huge. So like if you sell like 100k or like 200k copies or millions of copies, then you can live off of games. Other, if you're anywhere below that, you need to kind of uh, look at additional revenue streams is basically what it is. Um, and right now, like that's where we, we're headed. Uh, we're going to inform our community more about what exactly we're doing. Um, but yeah, this is where we are. Cool. And, and uh, then finally, how can people sign up to these monthly broadcasts? And do you have a website that people can check out or where can people find you? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, we have the um, uh, newsletters that we have. Um, it's um, the our, our list. Uh, you can subscribe on our uh, game page, suzerainegame.com or torporgames.com. You can sign up to the newsletter there. You can find us on Discord. If you have a very nice Discord server with a lot of role-playing, you can even assign yourself your own in-game party and uh, talk with your fellow colleagues in the, the National Assembly, discuss laws and bills. There's a big RP community going that is still passing laws and you know creating <laughs> events and stuff. And uh, obviously our Steam forums is pretty active. Like we post our stuff um, there, we keep our community updated. Um, and on Twitter at Torpor Games, we share these links uh, there too. We have a subreddit that reached 1,000 people. Um, all the, everything gets posted there as well. So you can find us in different places. And yeah, we, we're very open with our community. I think we're more open than a lot of indie studios or like a lot of dev studios in general um, because we're trying to do something different. We're, gonna, we're trying to do things our way, uh, a different way. And I, I, I hope people keep appreciating and keep seeing what, what we're doing. Um, yeah, just find us. Well, 
so far, I'll include the links in the show notes as well to make it easier for people to uh, to go there. But it uh, seems to be working out pretty well because, uh, uh, again, from the demo that I've played, I, you know, it's incredible how you manage to make meetings interesting in the game. Yeah, and boring political <laughs> that, meetings, yeah. Yeah, that I, I was, you know, never been more invested in meetings in my life than in Suzerain. <laughs> so <laughs> congratulations on that. And that then, was a hard task, yeah. That was a hard, hard yes. ask. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm looking forward to finding out what will happen because in the demo, the media mogul wanted, uh, wanted to speak with me. Uh, mm. I refused. I don't know if that was the right choice or the wrong choice, what the consequences would be, but I'm looking forward to finding out what will happen in the full game. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are some uh, consequences, um, but it's it's about <laughs> what you're trying to do and what, what, what it's about you. Um, and then the game sure. reacts accordingly uh, and how you role play as well, right? Um, but yeah, it's 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 cool. Which um, which festival did you play the demo in? Oh, what was... Uh, I? I'll have to... It was one of the, I think it was in April, more or less. The Spring Festival? The Ludonarricon? Uh, it was Ludonarricon, I think it was, yes. Yeah. That was, a, that was where... a big one that we, yes. yeah, we, we, a lot of people saw and a lot of people played our demo. We got a lot of feedback from that festival. It was very, it was, uh, it's our publisher's, um, uh, publisher uh, festival about narrative games and, and um, all the cool stuff with like panels and all that. There's going to be another one uh, this spring. Uh, it's upcoming Ludonarricon 2021. Um, we're going to be a part of it. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 awesome. Interesting. There's one thing that I really want to add there is that um, during COVID times, um, a lot of these uh, festivals going digital, uh, Steam hosting a lot of games festival focused on upcoming games has helped significantly for smaller studios in discoverability. Um, I think... Uh, like with Ludonarricon and the Steam festivals, we reached uh, quite a lot of uh, wish lists and uh, people before launch. These have been very helpful because the main issue as is a small studio is discoverability and people don't know who you are and people don't know what you're doing. And these events have really helped. Nice. Well, that's where I discovered Suzerain and uh, some other games as well. I actually put... Uh, and. Uh... A website on our website, Adventure Games Podcast, Luton Aracon 2020, that Suzerain was the first game that I spoke about. It's the game that struck with me most. So Thanks, thanks. Um, uh, yeah, again, there's a lot of, lot of options. And yes, uh, your publisher's fellow traveler, at least from what I can see, they do great work for, you know, well, games in general, but narrative games they seem to do as well. So I want to give them a shout out um as well so yeah, is there anything yeah. else that you would oh, sorry yeah hmm. go ahead we're, yeah we were here uh fellow travel has been a great partner um and um there are like nuances to every uh, work relationship for sure but overall we've been very happy with um with our partnership and uh the one thing that was like yeah that i have to mention because i told how about a story of receiving the investment and um uh like whenever we sat down with fellow traveler, which was by the way, our number one pick out of a list of 10 publishers, um, like the main decision maker person there, um, really looked at, at us and like saw a true concept with passion. And that was quite risky in my opinion to invest in and said, these people can do it. And like, I believe in this idea. I want to see, you know, if we can pull this off and it is these types of, um, moments and investments and like this type of trust 
um, that really can unlock uh, potential studios out there like us. And I think overall the industry should give more chances to creatives with a bold vision, uh, a passion, an idea. Um, and I think there will be better games for it. Yeah, definitely. I think I couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> so, uh, well, thank you so much, Atta, for joining me. I'm delighted to have spoken with you because I wanted to speak to you guys ever since I played the demo through the rain, and I I will look forward to playing this game and talk about it more in the, on the podcast. Thank you, Atta, and uh, hope to keep in contact. I'll definitely be joining the Discord, and uh, <laughs> and hope to have you on again sometime for whatever you do in the future. Best oh, of luck. Much appreciated. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, much love, and yeah, have a good one. So that was my interview with Atta from Torpor Studios. I hope you enjoyed it, and a huge thank you to Atta for... Uh, speaking to me about his game as well and as I said I have bought the game so hopefully I can be able to play it and review it at some point in the near future but in the meantime next week I'll be joined again by Thomas and Laura as we will be reviewing the latest adventure games that we have been playing so until then take care everyone goodbye If you like the Adventure Games podcast, then please subscribe, rate, and review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please leave a review on iTunes if you can, as every review helps, and reviews will help get the word out, especially for Adventure Game developers who appear on the podcast. Now, you can also follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at AdventGamePod. You can follow me on Facebook at Adventure Games Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Adventure Games Podcast as well. And we're also on Discord at Adventure Games Podcast. So if you are a Adventure Game developer or Adventure Game player, you can follow us there. So again, please feel free to retweet and share podcast episodes and the podcast to people who you believe may enjoy it and you can also find more information about the podcast on www.adventuregamespodcast.com so until next time thank you